0: listening to the Party in My Plants podcast, and you're about to hear what wine pairs best with salad and everything else about fermented grapes you ever wanted to know. Welcome to the Party in My Plants podcast, where I make healthy living as fun as a party so you'll, you know, actually want to do it and then actually feel, look, and live your best. I'm your host, Talia Pollock. Now let's get this party started. This episode is enthusiastically sponsored by a product that couldn't possibly float my boat more, Four Sigmatic. My boat is so floated by Four Sigmatic's mushroom drinks that any more floating would turn my boat into an airplane because it's flying. Okay, so the first time I tried a packet of Four Sigmatic mushroom tea and a glass of hot water, I was muy skeptical because of this whole mushroom thing being really trendy right now and I'm always reluctant to hop on trend trains. Wow, we're really covering all the modes of transportation here. But I drank those shrooms and I felt truly awesome. It's hard to explain. I just felt way more awesome than I felt before I drank it. Since then, I consistently consume at least one type of shrooms a day, and it helps me know it's going to be bright, 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 sunshiny day, even when it's rainy and gray. Because I am telling you, these mushrooms are magic. Although they don't make me hallucinate in a bathtub like my ex-boyfriend's famous magic mushroom experience, which in hindsight, he seemed way too proud of. But nobody's hallucinating the magical effects of these shrooms, okay? They are ultra scientifically proven to boost immunity and gut health. Yes, please and thank you. And the four different shrooms that Four Sigmatic uses most, hence the four in Four Sigmatic, wink, wink, they all do different epic things for your bod. Reishi helps you relax. Cordyceps give you a non caffeinated energy for sports and stuff. Lion's mane, which does not come from a lion's mane, boosts your brain. And chaga is a mega charge for your immune system. I weave all four of those separate mushrooms into my life by way of the teas. That's what all I'm talking about here, people are mushroom teas that you dissolve in a packet of hot water and haya. But I also fancy myself some of their fancier shroom concoctions. They have this relaxing, thanks to the reishi hot cocoa that I pretty much make every night with almond milk, They have matcha powder, which is the only matcha I now use. They have these magic mushroom chai latte packets that you can add to water or almond milk for a hot or iced sweetest sippable treat. And I have to say, even though I don't drink coffee, Four Sigmatic is kind of famous for their multiple kinds of organic, much better for you coffee, even mocha mixes. So you can mocha chocolate. Okay, enough from me. I'm sorry. I just finished a mushroom matcha latte and I'm flying high. But because, you listen to this podcast. Thanks so much for doing that, by the way. You can save 15% off any and all Four Sigmatic shroomy stuff you'll want to buy off of their site, foursigmatic.com, using code party in my plants. Or you can just go to foursigmatic, F O U R S I G M A T I C, dot com slash party in my plants to automatically save that 15%, baby. Oh, by the way, did I mention that I don't even really like eating mushrooms? Yeah, but now, thanks to Four Sigmatic, my body doesn't need to have shroom FOMO. Okay, again, hit up foursigmatic.com slash plants to save 15% on this mega boat floating stuff that I always find stuffed into my pockets, purses, luggage, or my bra because I just can't get enough. I'm in Italy right now guzzling all the wine and pretending to like the tannins and the terroir and the hints of tobacco in it, so I figured now's as bene as the time as ever to re-air this grape chat all about wine. So today's guest used to just be a regular person, or a civilian, as she calls it. Not too long ago, Bianca Bosker was just a run-of-the-mill boxed wine drinker, not giving any thought or sniffs to wine that she'd sip, until one day she discovered something that forever changed the way she viewed fermented grapes. She stumbled upon the secret world of sommeliers and became obsessed. I'm not going to spoil the rest of the story. I will let Bianca tell you her tale. But if you've been curious about how to feel more comfortable ordering or buying wine, what if you've been wondering which wine pairs perfectly for planty dishes and whether wine really has any redeeming health qualities, I think Bianca, the New York Times best-selling author of Cork Dork, is the perfect person to satiate your thirst for vino knowledge. Bianca, thank you so much for coming on the Party in My Plants podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to join you. Yeah, well, I've never had someone on to talk about my favorite way to consume grapes, so thank you for being that person. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it's taken you so long. That's crazy, <laughs> but I'm honored to be here and honored to
1: be your first.
0: <laughs> you know, it's it's unique because you don't own a wine shop or work as a sommelier. You're a professional journalist, and what you do, referred to, or at least referred to as an amateur drinker who just stumbled into, you know, the land of wine and then wrote a book about it. And now you're somewhat of an expert. But can you tell people more about how you got into this whole wine world?
1: Yeah, so I should say that um, I am now a card-carrying sommelier, which is oh. a big part of my journey. So yes, I can decant with a license. Hell yeah, but, you can. <laughs> but it's true. When I start, when I embarked on the journey that turned into uh, my book Cork Dork, I was not a wine connoisseur by any stretch of the imagination. Like as far as you know, some people kind of think about wine regions, Burgundy versus Bordeaux, I really didn't get any farther than bottle or box. Like <laughs> that was my wine expertise. And it didn't really bother me until I discovered this world of cork dorks. And cork dork is sort of the insider nickname for the most passionate and obsessive and knowledgeable wine lovers. And, you know, I um, discovered it because I happened to be out to dinner one night and this Psalm mentioned that he was preparing for something called the best sommelier in the world competition. Mm -hmm. And I thought that sounded ridiculous. (laughs) And I started looking into it. And before I knew it, I got hooked on binge watching videos of this competition, which is, Essentially the Westminster dog show with booze, <laughs> and was an epiphany moment for me because I had always thought of wine as this thing of pleasure. And these mm. cork dorks turned it into something approaching like god awful pain. Um, <gasps> and their obsession obsessed me. I mean, they licked rocks to train their palates, spouses to spend more time studying. They had voice coaches, memory coaches, voice coaches. Classes.
0: Dance classes wait
1: what, <laughs> um, and yeah, to learn dance classes to learn how to move more gracefully around tables in the restaurants, and oh my God, I was fixated on the one hand by what was the big deal about wine, and I was also really intrigued because at the time I was working as the tech editor at the Huffington Post and. My life was all screens. And these psalms who really live for this physical pleasure, for taste, for smell, made me realize how sterile my life was. And wow. so basically before I had a chance to, to second guess how irresponsible my decision was, I quit my job and started drinking very heavily. <laughs> and uh decided I didn't want to just write about these cork dorks. I wanted to see if I could become one of them. And so that was really the uh, inebriated and wine-soaked adventure that led to um, me actually you know, training as a sommelier, eventually working the floor, and to
0: Cork the book. That's amazing. That's awesome. Well, I didn't finish your book fully, but I started it. And the scene, if you will, where you talk about when you went to dinner and discovered this guy that was so into wine and you just described this man being into wine and your, you know, amateur drinker status. I'm curious, how would you define an amateur drinker?
1: Well, I think it definitely runs the gamut. So Psalms have an expression, as I learned, basically they refer to outsiders as civilians. And the implication (laughs) there is that, you know, guests don't realize just how deep, the obsession goes, the passion, the care, the hard work, the sacrifice that goes into it. And, you know, I think that there's, uh, at least I found in the beginning, there was sort of a line that I couldn't cross as a civilian. And um, it really,
0: civilian. you know, it didn't
1: happen until I got a job as a seller rat, really working in the industry. But, you know, I think that, you know, amateur drinker, it's a loose definition for sure. I think, you know, most of us are kind of amateur drinkers, I would say. Mm-hmm. And for some people, I think that's okay. I think, you know, not everyone has to uh, memorize every vineyard name in Burgundy in order to take pleasure from a glass of wine.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, I would ask the question, is it a passion that you can develop? But clearly, you're living proof of that because you went from being completely uninterested in wine to being what sounds like very much obsessed. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
1: And not only is it a passion <laughs> that you can develop, but it's these are senses that you can develop, which I think is really critical. You know, I was really intrigued from the get go by these humans that had this sort of sensory abilities that I associate with like bomb sniffing dogs at airports and I didn't know if they had been born that way if it was just luck of the genetic draw or could any of us develop those abilities and what would change if we did and in fact any of us can I mean I'm living proof of that I at the end of this all as a way of sort of testing whether I'd advanced, got um, a brain scan that's kind of based on Whoa. studies, yeah, that, that show that um, with a little bit of work um, and a little bit of training, our our brains actually experience the world in a very different way. So Wow. I am now totally obsessed. I can talk your ear off about Riesling at any night of the week. And um, oh my I, I've god, probably driven some of my house guests a little crazy in the process. <laughs>
0: What are these senses that you're talking about that the Somaliers have? Also, before you answer that, tell us the proper pronunciation of. Am I saying it right, Sommelier? You're saying it beautifully. Yeah, Sommelier. Yes. yes. you can also. Just, I used to say Somalier, and then my fiance is like, "No, it's sommelier.
1: Well done, you're beautiful. <laughs> I, you I'll can tell also him. <laughs> just uh, hack the process by saying "Som." <laughs>
0: <laughs> Even like civilians can say some. I feel like that's like an insider word.
1: Oh, I think it, I think if you'd rather not, <laughs> wine can be intimidating enough as it is without I to, like, know. stumble over that word. So I, I'd cut you some slack on that one.
0: That's really nice of you. <laughs> so, what are some of these senses and you know sensory powers that you guys that you were able to develop? So all of them, but most specifically taste and smell. What I find really fascinating
1: is, you know, we've been given five senses to make sense of the world and we basically ignore two of them. You know, Mm. taste and smell are these forgotten senses. And in fact, we can, basically blame Plato and Aristotle for that. They decided early on, um, these were the base animalistic senses. They don't matter. They're sort of the enemies of you know, wisdom and cultivation. And that mindset has really persisted through. I mean, even if you think about the pre- present day, like smelling your food, sniffing, commenting on odors, like when you talk about something that smells, it can really only ever be a bad thing. At the Hmm. same time, you know, growing up, we learn that the cow goes moo, the fire engine is red, um, but rarely, if ever, do we learn what grass really smells like or how to describe kind of um, the stink of honeysuckle. And so what was really fascinating to me about these world of sommeliers and cork dorks was not just the obsession about wine, though definitely that, but also the fact that they, through that whole kind of sensory mindset out the window. And they really lived for these forgotten senses of taste and smell. And so what I found was, you know, I think interestingly, there's this idea that humans are really bad smellers. And I, as part of my training, you know, I was, Blind tasting with aspiring master sommelier is multiple times a week on weekday mornings, but I also spend a lot of time with scientists, you know, dissecting human mm. cadavers, studying the brain. And in fact, what research shows is that we are much better smellers than we give ourselves credit for. I mean, we beat dogs when it comes to certain odors, rats, long considered, you know, uber noses. And in fact, mm. we can get better. And the way that you do that, I mean, it's sort of like learning a new language. I mean, if you hear someone speaking Chinese or Japanese, I mean, it's just sounds until you associate meaning with those sounds. And likewise with smells. I mean, I had a master perfumer who was one of my coaches or mentors, and he said, you know, you have to start by describing the smell of everything you encounter over the course of your day. You know, it's like tasting notes for your smell of your shampoo in the morning, describe the smell of that parsley you're putting into your meal at night. And, you know, it's really by putting language on these aromas that we can begin to become more attuned to them. And the body changes as a result. And I would say your life changes as a result.
0: Well, that's one question I was going to ask you as you were talking, like after you've developed these senses more, is the world like really, I don't know, like more vibrant to you or overwhelming in any way? If you're like smell, especially living in New York, I mean, are you just smelling everything? Everything all the time. And it's wonderful.
1: (laughs) Even the disgusting things are wonderful. You know there's so much I have to say, but it. it really, I didn't know what would change when I started living for these senses and so much did. And I think part of it is there's so much data out there that we're ignoring that comes in the form of, of smells particular, but also tastes because we just haven't made ourselves attuned to it. I mean, I think when I go out, yeah, when I leave my apartment now in New York and I walk around the street, there's things I never noticed about the heartbeat of the place that I live in. I mean, I actually enjoy being able to sit on the subway and tell whether it's urine or maybe like stale vomit that I'm smelling. That's,
0: you know, or, um, you know, that's a different kind of stopping and smelling the roses. Yeah. (laughs)
1: So I do that too. Um, (laughs) I also think that there is beauty that lurks, that we're missing. I mean, smell is this wonderful kind of momentary hedonistic escape. But I also think more importantly than that, I became aware of, as I got further into this world, what I would call secondhand sensing, which is this problem that I think a lot of us you know, we sort of take someone else's word for it when it comes to food, right? Something is delicious because it's expensive, because we waited Mm -hmm. a few weeks for that reservation, because that cafe has really cool Edison bulbs, you know, and I think (laughs) that there's an irony to our obsession with food, which is that we spend all this time and money Finding food that tastes better, and we largely neglect teaching ourselves to taste well. And so I Mm. think that what honing these senses does, and you know, it isn't just smell, but I've talked a lot about it. They all really, you know, work in unison. They all act on each other, but getting in touch with these things, learning to savor them, I think can make us more objective and it can also help us stay true to our own felt experience of something. So we're not being sort of you know, diluted in a way by brand, by habit, by all these other things that play to our biases.
0: Well, in a way, it's kind of like developing more mindfulness, being more present. It is. Although I would describe it as sensefulness, which I think is different. So this idea that it's by
1: tuning into our senses that we better make sense of the world. Um, Because I think that, to me at least, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but I think, you know, mindfulness can often be about turning inward, right? Really taking of mm-hmm. how you feel, and to me, sensfulness, it is about embracing wholeheartedly with deliberate intention and deliberate attention everything that's happening in the outside world, whether it's sniffing a glass of wine or mm-hmm. inhaling
0: the body odor. <laughs> Oh, gosh! <laughs> wow. So you said that the way that we can begin to develop our senses, you know, at least of smell or taste, is really by learning notes. Is that, is that correct? Well, it's. I would say the first step to a better sense of smell is paying attention. So what
1: that means in a practical way is smell things and just try to describe them. And it's hard. I mean, you know, English yeah. language doesn't have fantastic smell descriptors. But you could start by looking at something called the wine aroma wheel, which was developed by a scientist at the University of California, Davis, Ann Noble. And she has sort of group of words that are very helpful to talk about wine, but really anything. I mean, you know, when I smell a honeysuckle, for example, you know, I think about there's this sort of sweetness, there's a honey note, maybe some acacia. You know, it is very much metaphor, but just that process of of trying to put words on a smell is going to help lock it in your brain, and also just exposure. I mean, you know, you could get three essential oils and smell as I did this for time. Mm-hmm. Smell, you know, spend thirty seconds smelling each of them in the morning and another thirty seconds at night. The other thing is for taste, right? So I think interestingly you know, we can pick up, some scientists think about a trillion different aromas versus we have about five basic tastes, though there's some debate. And even those five basic tastes, I think we don't always, we use external cues to figure out what's sweet or sour. And so what Mm -hmm. I would suggest, you know, which is one thing you do when you're tasting wine is, you know, learn what sour, you know, what does acid feel like on your tongue? What does sugar really feel like? And, and I think wine is a good instructor because you don't get to sort of rely on the fact that, oh, it's lemon. I can see it's a lemon. So it's sour. So, mm. you know, they all look the same. Wine, yeah. Like, to taste <laughs> acid, part. for example, take a sip of the wine, swallow it, put your tip of your tongue on the roof of your mouth. And then I, you know, you can sort of lean forward. So you're, um, Face is parallel to the floor, and you basically ask yourself: If you opened your mouth, would you drool? And the more you feel like you're going to drool, the higher the acid in the wine. I think that teaches you. You know, we salivate response to acid. I think that begins. You can start that exercise with wine, and then apply it to salad dressings, to um, sauces, all kinds of things. Likewise, so fascinating. Touch. You know, all these things again act on the other. Like the flavor of food, and wine. It's not just taste and smell. It's also the color of the wallpaper that you see when you eat it, it's the soundtrack playing behind it. It's who, how much you paid for that dish, who you're eating it with, mm-hmm. all those things. You know, flavor is this complex, messy beast. And I think um, there's something to be said for us really embracing its multidimensionality.
0: Do you feel that some people can have a heightened sense of smell or taste? I mean, growing up, my parents used to tell me I should go move to France and be a nose, which I guess are are the people that, I don't know, perfume people that smell or something, right? Right. (laughs) Because I was like, have insane senses. Like if you put growing up, like I, I guess I'm trying to remember, there was some story where like my, we got fudge, you know, I was like, it was like a summer. I was probably like 10. My, my dad got like a bag of fudge and there was like maybe coffee flavor. And I hate coffee more than anything, but the rest of the bag was like peanut butter and the coffee fudge, I kissed the peanut butter fudge and I ate the peanut butter fudge and I was like, ew, it tastes like coffee. And I didn't even know there was <laughs> coffee in there. Like that was my innate sense of taste that I experienced that. Do you think that some people are just born with like heightened senses like that and other people are not?
1: Well, I think what's interesting is that each of us are more or less sensitive to different odors. Mm. So if you've ever had that experience of being in a room where someone's like, oh, that is disgusting, you smell that blue cheese, and you can't smell anything, it doesn't mean you're having a stroke or sick (laughs) or something. Um, In fact, we all have what are called selective anosmia. Anosmia is the scientific sort of word that for being blind to an odor, essentially. Wow. Um, And so, you know, we each have things... Likewise, you know, you may be really, really sensitive to coffee, but much less sensitive to, say, caramel odors. Fascinating. Um, But what I will say is that with taste, it is very well documented. So you may have heard of this, but there's um, this phenomenon of super tasters. Mm -hmm. Um, If you are a super taster... Everyone knows because you can't shut up about it. My husband is like this; um, but he's is a super
0: actually, taster. Yeah,
1: oh yeah. Um, and you, uh, <laughs> there's a taste. There's a sort of what it means is that you have um, an extra. Um, you sort of have a higher number of taste receptors on your tongue that are thought to make you more sensitive to smaller nuances in tastes. Perhaps also textures, temperatures, some debate on that. But yeah, so there's super tasters. Um, I think it's maybe a quarter of the population. I'm forgetting the
0: exact number How do you find Um, out if you're a super taster?
1: Great question. You can send away for these strips that are coated with a particular chemical and uh, you put them on your tongue and you will... Oh my God, I'm going to do that. I'm 100%. I'm not going to tell you how your nose so you don't cheat, but (laughs) um, yeah, it's a weird experience. I did that once. Are you? you envelope. I am a taster, which means I have slightly higher higher number than average. And then very cruelly, the scientists called normal people non-tasters. Um, <laughs> yes, I know. It's so sad. Uh, but yeah, no, you can do it. It's not, I don't think the kits are that expensive, although it is sort of weird. I remember getting it in the mail and it came from some like, PO box somewhere <laughs> in a random Build, place in the East Village. And I was like, okay, am I really going to put this on my, my tongue? tongue yeah. yeah. But I did.
0: You survived. <laughs> All right. And you still taste wine. So that's good. <laughs> so we've been talking about notes. Can you define what a note is? Because I've never really understood like this has a note of cigars or whatever. Like what is a note? Like a hit? You like a tasting note? Yeah. I mean, tasting notes are... Uh, an interesting
1: blend of tradition, uh, poetry, and bullshit, and <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and tasting notes. You know, are um, we think of them with wine, right? It's you're right. It's the people, the tasting notes. When someone gets a glass of wine, they take a sniff and they sort of say, "Yeah, this has elements of uh, freshly turned earth and peppered raspberry and pomegranate." And now, tasting notes have really gone from wine to invade. Everything from pot to coffee to chocolate. I mean, Mm -hmm. almost everything, if you you look at the packaging, has their version of tasting notes. Now, tasting notes are so ingrained. I think a lot of us assume that these were very um, old, right? That like the ancient Egyptians were sitting around describing their wines. (laughs) In fact, they're only about as traditional as disco. I mean, these were really codified in the 1970s, um, in no small part by that woman I mentioned, Ann Noble at the University of California, Davis, mm. who got so fed up with these really broad, almost nonsensical descriptors that she decided to came up come up with her own language. So for a long time, people talked about wine as being feminine or masculine or honest, or, you know, it didn't mm. hold the blood of its clan quite enough. You know, these sort of almost classic. I've never heard those. Yeah, they've fallen out of favor. And I think what's interesting is that she came up with this vocabulary that is really based on things that you can find at the grocery store, right? Green bell pepper, apple, lemon, peach. Now, since coming up with that, you may have noticed that tasting notes have once again gotten quite flowery and oftentimes confusing. There's an interesting study, for example, that took um, critics' tasting notes and glasses of wine. And they had people read the tasting note and then try and match it to the wine. And they Civilian people. It. Civilian people, yes. And they could do no
0: better than if they'd just guessed at chance. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea when I see it on a menu. Right. Well, the problem doesn't is... doesn't help t- me at all.
1: Tasting notes have sort of evolved. So much of them have become marketing. You know, that mm. if you're... And also what's hard is if you're talking about a bunch of, let's say, Chardonnay from Burgundy. If you're trying all those Chardonnays from Burgundy they're all going to taste somewhat similar. There's only so many times that you can say, you know, green apple or peach or lemon. And so then you have to begin talking about, you know, the desiccated rind of a blood orange. Right. Um, Right. And I think that it's unfortunate because these can be really confusing. That being said, I think there's times where, you know, people, I think the issue becomes when, if if I say that, um, for example, I was tasting with a master sommelier when I was doing my, you know, hard of blind tasting training. And he described as a wine smelling like peppered
0: black raspberry. Because we all know what that tastes like. Yeah. And I said, you know, have you actually ever
1: had that? I mean, is a black raspberry even a thing? And he said, you know, I mean, it's just sort of what I would imagine a peppered black raspberry. Oh, what?
0: That's so subjective. Right. Because if you
1: don't know a lot about wine and you're smelling a wine and you don't get that peppered black raspberry that that sommelier or, or menu told you you'd get, you assume that either there's something wrong with the wine or there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. So while I am also guilty of using kind of, I guess, evocative tasting notes, I think i once described a wine as being like, you know, like it's made from the, you know, hip, cousin of pinot noir that goes to burning man you know but that's funny <laughs> but yeah but i think there's times where you know these things are more poetry than they are actual you know objective descriptors and that can become confusing one yeah. quick caveat, there are cases where these descriptors, these tasting notes are not metaphor, but they have a scientific basis. And so if you've ever had Sauvignon Blanc, you know that people often say Sauvignon Blanc tastes like green bell pepper. Well, it turns out that green bell pepper contains pyrazines. It's why it smells like green bell pepper. And pyrazines are also present in Sauvignon Blanc grapes. So it's not insane for certain grapes, um, you know, that, that you describe them as... You know, green bell pepper, peach, there's a number of other chemicals in this thing.
0: Wow. Crazy. A little BS, but not always. (laughs) (laughs) And some poetry (laughs) and some fun. Well, I think that, you know, these notes and these descriptions are a lot of what really intimidates people when they look at a wine list. And so you not so long ago were just a civilian or an amateur drinker. And I I know because I've read the beginning part of your book where you talk about how you had no idea what to look at on a wine list. But now you've come to the other side and you know everything or a lot of things. So how do you suggest us normal folk, us civilians, feel a little less intimidated and more empowered when we look at a wine list?
1: Yeah, well, I would say that the first thing starts with getting really comfortable with your senses. I mean, I think that even before you start to memorize, you know, regions, grape varieties, vintage years, you need to know the basics. And I think that that's something I have come to feel that the wine world doesn't do enough. I think that there's a tendency in the wine world to tell people what to taste instead of showing them how to taste. And to me the latter is a much more solid and reliable and intelligent foundation for a relationship with wine. And so what does that mean? It means well, you know, getting comfortable with smell. I mean start if you if you wonder if a wine um you know can really smell like green bell pepper or lemon buy a green bell pepper buy a lemon you know i had a sommelier friend i remember she wanted to taste raspberries in all different phases so she bought raspberries she you know smelled them when they were fresh smelled them when they were a little older smelled them after they dried out smelled them after she cooked <laughs> them you know wow. if you want to you know figure out you're never going to smell violet in a wine if you can't smell violet in violet. Um, there's also kits you can buy that help you do this. Um, mm. One's called the du Vin. It has all these aromatic essences that you can smell often you know, with a glass of wine in hand to pick up on these aromas. Now, the second thing is, as we just said, tasty notes, a lot of that is metaphor, mm-hmm. right? When we say that a Syrah smells like Green olives or salami. There's no actual green olives or
0: salami (laughs) Salami in that wine. Or sweet tobacco
1: you know, I will say I thought that sweet tobacco was BS until I spent an hour in a tobacco shop smelling all different kinds of tobacco. And now I get it. But again, got to know what tobacco smells like. But so these are, yeah, those are sort of metaphors. It's something that we've sort of agreed to call the smell of salami, right? (laughs) And the other element to this that's very important are, is the structure of a wine. Now, these are these, you know, structure, these are the sort of objective elements, things that you can actually measure in a wine. And they're almost like the Esperanto of wine, right? Where like everyone sort of is familiar with these things. So the structure of a wine includes things like acid, you know, is the acid high or low, alcohol, is the alcohol of the wine high or low? Is it, you know, sugar? Is it sweet? Is it dry? Dry meaning no sugar. Tannins, meaning, you know, how astringent is it? Does it have that sort of like puckery, um, cotton ball mouth, you know, texture or not? And these things are really important because once you figure out, hey, this is what acid feels like on my tongue, it makes me drool, um, you'll begin to be able to figure out, do you like high acid wines or low acid wines? Mm -hmm. Do you like high alcohol wines or low alcohol wines? And then you can take that knowledge to a restaurant, to a sommelier, to a wine shop and be able to order with confidence. And I will say, for what it's worth, you really only need two pieces of information to order a bottle of wine or Buy one at a wine store, and that's how much you want to spend. Okay, yeah. And what flavors you want. Now, for the budget, everyone has a budget. You should not feel embarrassed. You can also, you know, just point to a number on the list, and the sommelier is not insane. They'll pick up the hint um, of what you're. Oh.
0: Yeah, so you right. mean it, when they come over, you could just – if they're like, what range are you thinking? You could just point and not – if you feel embarrassed in front right. of whoever I you're mean, with. Exactly. If you're gotcha. at dinner That's and someone don't nice want to tip. say, hey, I – The cheapest one. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> you could find the cheapest one and just sort of, you know, while they're over your shoulders, sort of say, I was kind of thinking about this one. <laughs> And then you sort of say, well, okay, what are the flavors that you want, right? And that could be as specific as saying, hey, I had an amazing wine, uh, you know, Movia from Slovenia. What do you have that's similar to that? Or it could be as broad as saying, I like wines that taste like peach or I was out with a friend of mine's mom. Um, she was ordering and she was like, give me wine. She's like, I like wines that taste like shit. What? I was like, great. And I was like, awesome. Okay, if you like wines that taste like horse shit, we're gonna go Bordeaux. And if you like wines, wait, is this that taste a joke? Like- Are you serious? No, I'm totally serious. I said, if you like wines that taste like <laughs> cow shit, we're gonna go burgundy. And she said, horse shit. And we got her a greenhouse. <laughs> no, she what? was very happy. And so I'm saying no, but I mean, a good, a good sommelier, someone who's at a, you know, Good local wine store. If you tell them, you know, if you begin to give some of these indications, it doesn't have to be a lot. Uh, You could say, you know, maybe if you like Sauvignon Blanc, uh, tell them that. Maybe they'll find something different grape, similar style. You never know. It's like Netflix, right? It's like (laughs) if you like Law and Order, you
0: might like this other
1: (laughs) weird, creepy detective show.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. So, I mean, is it not enough to just be like? I like Pinot, you know, and then just like every time you see a Pinot Grigio on, you know, a menu, you just order that. Is that like really not what you would recommend? If that's what you
1: feel comfortable with and that's the wine that you know from having tried lots of other wines that this is what makes you happy, I think, you know, (laughs) life is short. You should enjoy yourself. I would also posit, um, I had one of my mentors, this guy, Paul Greco, who is this insane, mad genius who runs Terroir Tribeca here in New York. He used to make people promise to never drink the same wine twice. And at first I thought that was sort of insane. And more and more, I think he is totally right. I think that there are those wines, like Certain books, right, that you come back to again and again, and they're special and they're a little different each time, and they speak to you in a different way. But there's also, you know, there's more books than you could ever read in a lifetime, there's more wines than you could Mm -hmm. ever drink in a lifetime. And I think you know, the biggest risk is that you don't like it and you don't have it again, but you've had an experience. And so for me, at least, you know, I think, um, you know, it doesn't mean experimenting with wines that cost a lot, right? I think that, you know, it's it's easier to take the plunge. If you're not spending something outside of your comfort mm-hmm. zone. But nonetheless, I think that if you love a Pinot Grigio, well, say that to your or the you know, the person at, at a wine shop. But See if they can kind of parlay that into maybe a different region, a different grape. Mm. Um, Yeah. I think that you might find that, you know, you may not even know that you like something more if
0: you just stick with that. Sometimes you got to try CSI if you like Law & Order. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me ask you, you you keep talking about price. Is there like a, a direct correlation between price and, I guess, taste? So, yes and no. You know, when you are buying a bottle of
1: wine, I would say that, you know, if you're going from a 10 to a $20 bottle of wine, there is going to be a huge leap in quality in that $10. That $10 buys you wine that has, let's not forget, let's back up and say, you know, in some cases, I, I would say beyond, you know, maybe three figures, you know, or a hundred ish dollars, the price of a wine begins to reflect much more than just how it was made, right? The price of the wine has supply and demand. How rare is it? You know, how well known is it? I mean, all these other kind of things, but there is also to make a bottle of wine. I mean, it costs money. I mean, the same way that you spend a little extra to buy those organic avocados or organic bananas. I mean, a wine that has been made in a better way, that costs money. I mean, barrels, for example, can cost $1,000 a piece, you know, land that's in a region that's considered to have just the right amount of sunlight and rain and mist, that land goes for more money. And so what I would say is, you know, wine is not, people don't just kind of throw things at a dartboard. You know, if it's, there is oftentimes, there is, I should say, there is below a certain price range, you know, quality and price start to climb up together so that mm-hmm. ten dollar bottle of wine you know I should say if you're buying looking at a ten dollar bottle versus twenty dollar bottle that ten dollars buys you a huge leap in quality gotcha. between twenty and a thirty a little bit less between thirty and forty a lot less and and that sort of mm-hmm. inches up so that incremental ten dollars by the time it's you know a three hundred dollar and a three hundred and ten dollar bottle of wine those wines are gonna be very similar I would guess in terms of their quality gotcha. um,
0: so that's really helpful. And, you know, I think a lot of people also buy their wines based on label design. I mean, I was on a phone with a friend literally yesterday. I'm going to visit her this weekend, and she was at the grocery store, and she's like, "Let's, I'll get some wine. Oh, this one has a cute label. I'll just get this one. And then, like, hangs up the phone. <laughs> what are your – like, is your mind like, oh, my God, how is that real life? Like, what are your thoughts on people buying wine based on cute labels?
1: <laughs> it happens all the time. I mean, I that used to be my main <laughs> indicator 100%. I think that it can be very intimidating. Um, I think yeah. we know a lot about wine. Um, and I don't think the wine industry has done the best job at making itself hospitable. I think there's this yeah. weird kind of disconnect in wine where every, on the one hand, everyone in the industry wants more people to enjoy wine, to love wine. And yet there also hasn't been, I think, a great job kind of opening up the world to people. And so that was, I mean, a real goal of mine for Dork was to really say, let's, I mean, first of all, let's figure out what is BS and what isn't, but let's also kind of bring together parts of this world that we haven't seen before to better understand. I mean, I do think that there is a particular script that has worked very well for the wine world for a long period of time, but I think has worked less well for drinkers. And so Mm. the big goal of mine is to sort of say, you know, with Cork Dork, let's get away from that script. Let's let's talk, let's have a different conversation. Now, so going back to like, okay, it is intimidating. How do you make sense of it? Well, I would say start, first of all, by just understanding the different grapes, you know, pick, drink only wines made with Chardonnay for a week, but drink Chardonnay from France, California, Australia, and really feel you know how does that grape change? I like that idea. The next week, you know, do Pinot Noir, right? Start with the noble grape varieties, meaning the ones that you know so called because they're the most common. I mean, Pinot Noir, um, Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, like Riesling. So you know, blog, Chardonnay, I mean, there's a whole list of them that you can find online, but sort of pick one and stick with it until you really feel what it tastes like. And then secondly, keep track of things that you love or you don't. I mean, there's great apps these days like Delectable or Vivino, or you could just, mm-hmm. you know, keep a folder in your phone and take a picture, right? Mm-hmm. Like at the very least, you know, know where did it come from and what grape is it? And you can then begin to use that knowledge to figure out do you like whites from Italy? Do you hate whites from Italy? Um, And and you can use that to guide yourself. And for tasting note, I mean, I sometimes if I'm in a hurry, like it's just an emoji,
0: you know? (laughs) Really? Yeah. Like what kind of emojis do you use? Well, it really depends how drunk I am. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, but it's
1: um, you know, it really depends. I don't, you know, I don't want to be antisocial, so I oftentimes take a picture and then upload it to my app later. But, you know, maybe it's an emoji of the fruit flavors that I get in the wine. Maybe it's you know the hard eyes if I really love something. Um, like a football, do you ever
0: throw one of those
1: in there? Got <laughs> a note of football, old sweaty football. Um, I haven't played or spent enough time around
0: football <laughs> to know, but there's rainbows that make it in if that sounds. <laughs> the female dancing. Does she ever drink it? <laughs> okay, we could just turn this into an emoji conversation. We will not do that. But um, while we're talking about how drunk you are when you're doing these emoji notes, um, any advice for preventing hangovers from drinking lots of wine? Are there any wines that are less hangoverable?
1: <laughs> well, Drink water. I mean, honestly, it's pretty incredible how uh, no one yet has really, an, you know, has invented a cure for the hangover. Um, I think that there is, to be honest, also a lot of misunderstanding about what causes Yes. Oil. Do
0: you know the answer? Uh, as far as I know, it's
1: alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not, um, I do think that there are people that talk about um, you know, having a sulfur allergy, right? And they sort of say wines that have sulfur or sulfites in them, which is basically all wines, give me a very bad headache. Now, I think that there's, I've, I'm have i not intimately familiar with all of the research and all the latest research about this, but in general, I mean, you know, sulfur is a preservative. Sulfur is a preservative used in wine, but also used in dried fruits, sprayed on lettuce salad bars. And so if, your dried apricots aren't giving you a hangover. It's probably not the sulfites in the wine that are giving you a hangover. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think that, you know, oftentimes you've just drunk too much. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think that I sort of the best that I try and do, you know, is advice handed down to me from um, other sommeliers, which was to sweat as much as possible the next day to drink as much water as possible, mm-hmm. and a detox tea. Um, but I think that that just, you know, helps you, uh, you know, some of it, it just may be babying yourself. I yeah, think that is what it boils down to. Totally. Well,
0: let's talk a little bit about the health benefits of wine. Are there health benefits of wine?
1: So there is, so much research out there. I think with, like with coffee or butter that can kind of skew in any direction, you know, depending on what sampling of these research that you take. But, you know, in general, I mean, it seems like in moderate, you know, amounts. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, at the very least, you know, I think that there has, you know, sort of been studies, I believe that, you know, such a sort of idea of the French paradox, right. That Mm -hmm. people in France eat a great deal of, you know, fats and cheeses and again, the butter, their croissants, but also drink a lot of wine, which perhaps, you know, is heart healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not a physician. I think personally, at the very least, being mentally healthy also means being healthy. And so if a glass of wine is what you need to be happy, um, to sort of take that edge off to bond with someone. I do think that wine as opposed to other alcohols is such a social yeah. beverage. You, know, you don't take shots of wine. You really. <laughs> You sit, you linger, you talk. Um, You eat good food
0: or you drink it outdoors or in the snow. (laughs) Right, exactly. You you take a moment. and
1: A a glass of wine is, in some ways, I think, um, a sort of deep breath for your day. I mean, you just pause. Mm -hmm. Um, Ideally, you're smelling perhaps the odors of Lebanon, maybe the odors of, you know, your childhood in Oregon, if you're me opening a bottle of Pinot Noir from the Lambert Valley. And that's pleasure. And I think pleasure is good for you.
0: Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. We should just put a (laughs) bow on that. That was adorable. (laughs) Well, something less adorable. I don't know. I was trying to look for a segue, but additives. Talk to me about additives in wine. Yes. This is a very hot button issue. This is why Phoebe recommended you come on the podcast. She literally wrote, have her on. She'll talk to you about additives. <laughs> <laughs> so here's your moment. Yeah. Well, so additives have become...
1: So first of all, to back up, I think a lot of us go to a wine store. So as part of my research for Cork Dork, I got very interested in this question of wine quality, because I felt like if I was going to work the floor as a sommelier, I really had to understand, you know, what was a good wine, what was a bad wine, what was a fine wine. And this sent me to kind of asking all these people, you know, how do they define what a good wine was? And very frustratingly, you know, I spoke with wine chemists, I looked at wine laws, with sommeliers, critics, you name it. No one could really agree on what made for a good wine, but there seemed to be some agreement on what made for a bad wine. And so I went to the epicenter of what a lot of people consider bad wines um, to this um, sensory science lab where... You know, people are designing wines much the same way they're designing, you know, Swedish fish Oreos or you know Doritos Locos Tacos, right? You think about these these kind of flavor labs that are developing a product that'll be pleasing to large numbers of people, and the same thing happens with wine. Now I think that a lot of this, when we go to the wine store and we see, you know, just shelf after shelf after shelf of one bottle after another, we sort of assume that every one of these wines they look similar, right, is made with grapes and yeast and love. And that's (laughs) it, right? And wine, the wine industry has not sought to disabuse us of that notion, right? I think it goes out of its way to sort of play up the tradition the mystique of this natural product that comes from farms and in fact there are around 60 additives that can legally go into wine and these do everything from you know you can put in um, bentonite clay which is also in kitty litter which is just to, oh. to finer filter the wines you can put egg whites you can put milk I mean these things that take sort of tannins out of the wines so you can add define um, a
0: tannin real quick
1: a tannin so tannin they um, it's that You can feel it in a wine because it it gives you that kind of puckery, astringent taste, you know, Mm -hmm. like over
0: a steep tea. Is it what gives it legs when you tilt it on a glass? Or is that something totally different?
1: Um, in general, the legs that you get in a glass comes from alcohol and sugar. If you get those really fine, oh. well-defined um, sort of tiers or, or, yeah, legs
0: that are on the, the sides of the glass after you've spoken. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to interject. No? Oh, yeah.
1: So, <laughs> Keep um, going. The additives. So, yeah, the 60. The additives, dark acid, increase the acidity of a wine. And what's interesting is that the wine industry, they are not required to disclose these. So it's really difficult wow. to know have gone into your wine now
0: wow.
1: this sounds pretty scary and yeah. there are people that would argue that it is very scary it is very bad it you know leads to poor quality wines I have a more nuanced view I think first of all I think that there should be I think you should be quite required to share the ingredients that go into a wine yeah. I think you know we do that with almost everything else we eat we still eat things that have weird things in them um But I also think that, I think more transparency would be better. I think it would be helpful. I also think it would help people understand how they can get away with paying $5 for a bottle of wine, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, in some ways, um, I think we've come to understand that with our food, right? We expect that, okay, well, this piece of meat is more expensive because it's been raised in a, you know, better, more labor intensive, what have you, mm-hmm. you know, earth friendly. And I think there's just very little transparency for consumers around wine. And so um, it does make it hard if you're picking out a wine to understand, well, you know, $5 buys me the same 750 milliliters of fermented grape juice as yes, $50. Yes. Oh.
0: So- why bother? And this has a cuter label. (laughs) Right. And I also, though,
1: think that some of these additives sound scarier than they really are. So tartaric acid, for example, that sounds pretty disgusting to put into wine until you remember that grapes naturally produce tartaric acid. Likewise, you know, adding uh, egg whites to, to wine sounds horrific. Now, Most of those, I mean, those egg whites really shouldn't be in the final product. You know, they are meant to really filter out of solutions that when you're eventually drinking that wine, it doesn't contain eggs. And that's a technique that's been used in Bordeaux for hundreds of years. You know, this is not some crazy, you know, Lab experiment, and likewise, when you go back and look at the way that you know the ancient Greeks and Romans made wine, they would add things to it, yeah, in that case, lead on some occasions, so not something you want to be drinking yeah. um but I think that there's there's definitely a conversation happening right now, as you may have noticed in the wine world, um about natural wines versus mm-hmm. conventional wines and natural wines. the idea there is they're made with nothing added, nothing removed, so you know, you're not adding extra tartaric acid. You're not adding, you know, liquid oak tannins. You're not adding, you know, any number of other things. And you're not removing things. You're not um, filtering out, you know, things on the wine. And so they oftentimes look different as a result, right? They may be cloudier. And I think that there's there are natural wines that are absolutely delicious and move your soul just as there are conventional wines that are absolutely delicious and move your soul. And likewise, there are natural wines that smell like dirty diapers. And likewise, there are conventional wines um, that you never really want to
0: see again. And so uh, I think that... Or have notes of horseshit. Right.
1: Yeah, totally. <laughs> Which I actually like in my I <laughs> <laughs> But I know. But I do think that the one thing that is tough is the fact that even when it comes to natural wines because they don't have to tell us what they put into it, there is an element of really having to take people at their word. And maybe it's because, you know, of my sort of journalistic, skeptical inclinations, but also based on conversations with winemakers, I do think that, you know, it requires a lot of trust. And I've just, I think that we can't know for sure, you know, someone may tell you that their wine is made in a certain way, but it's very hard to actually verify that.
0: Wow. Well, when you say natural, do you mean organic or is that a totally separate thing? So similar, but a little different. So, and that's a
1: good point. I think there are not really formalized definitions. It's almost like a community kind of um, understanding, if you will. (laughs) And so organic, though, is a little different. Organic, you know, if you are organic certified, you have kind of, ticked off a certain number of things to be and and that has to do with the way that the wine is farmed.
0: You mean like the way the grapes are? Yes,
1: the way the grapes are farmed. Uh They're farmed organically. And that could, you know, in some cases people might apply for a you know government certification to certify that they're organic. Now many natural wines in general, yes, those grapes are farmed organically. In some cases they may be farmed biodynamically, which is a whole other
0: kind of philosophy on farming. And what does that mean? for people wondering, because that's something you see on menus now.
1: Yeah. So biodynamic is sort of organic plus. I mean, you're making <laughs> wines, you know, um, Rudolf Steiner's uh, kind of virtual philosophy, but doing things like, you know, you may bury a deer bladder stuffed with a particular root. This may not be exactly it, but, you know, or you may, may bury uh, the horn of something under the full moon in the vineyard. These different things that you know, are likewise designed to have minimal intervention, you know, to stay away from pesticides, from inorganic fertilizers, things like that. Um, But so again, natural wines can be farmed organically, can be farmed biodynamically. um, But an organic wine is not necessarily a natural wine. But again, these are kind of, flexible definitions you can't just and which is confusing I think you know it's it's understandable yeah. Um, it's a lot to try and keep track of yeah but natural wine I mean again it kind of hues to the spirit of nothing added again no kind of additives you're not adding a, um, a cultured yeast you're using just whatever yeasts you might find on the grapes in the vineyard and nothing removed so not right. removing, and filtering etc
0: It's interesting because, you know, being in the health world and having friends and family who are very privy to my health world, you know, when we're reading a menu and anyone sees organic wine on it, everyone's like, oh, my God, look, we got to get the organic wine. (laughs) Like, you know, if you just go around the world getting all the organic wines that you find on menus, do you think you're sacrificing, you know, opportunities to have great tasting wines? Like, basically what I'm trying to say, just organic wine tastes less good. Not necessarily by any means. And it doesn't necessarily taste better. Right. I'm saying, I I mean, that's my experience. I Mm -hmm. think there are people
1: that would disagree with me. And I think that there's a million exceptions to to this. I think that it really depends, you know, on the experience that you want to have with wine. I mean, Mm -hmm. I personally um, am very broad with my tastes. I like drinking natural wines, but I, you know, there's occasions where, you know, if I go to a barbecue on the beach and if, you know, the only wine that's there is a kind of crappy $7, you well,
0: know, maybe not seven, but, you know,
1: <laughs> like, you know, kind of crappy, like $12 bottle of rose,
0: like, I'm not going to make a scene about it. Well, is there anything that people can look for at all on a menu to know if they're getting, like, a, you know, highly additive? added wine? Like, is there anything that we can look for? Because I mean, I'm sure if somebody's listening and let's say they're vegan, you know, and they don't want egg whites ever having passed through their wine. Or I heard once, tell me if this is wrong, that some wines get filtered through fish bones. Is that? real? Um,
1: fish bladder,
0: actually. Fish bladder. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> Even better. So like, right. okay. So if every, someone's listening, they're like, "Ah, oh, hell no, I don't want egg whites or fish bladder in my wine. Yeah. What do they do? How do they order wine and feel like they're going to have no fish bladder residue in it?
1: <laughs> so they can look for vegan wines. I mean, they're wines that relate from okay. being vegan for sure. The other thing I would add is that, you know, I think that Part of this technological revolution in the winery has, you know, kind of, to me, democratized decent wine. So part of what you can do with these additives is um, you can make wines, you know, cheaper wines taste better. In some cases, make cheaper wines taste like slightly more expensive wines. So in general, what I would say is if you're spending... $10 $10 or under on a bottle of wine, you know, it's probably been massaged because they use these additives to disguise any number of different faults, any number of corners that have been cut in the winemaking process. And so, you know, while you're not guaranteed to have a quality wine without these additives at a higher level, I mean, you know, wines that are $150, $200 can have them in. You know, at the same time, wine is, as many people will say,
0: kind of like a grocery. So Right. I was just going to say that. Yeah.
1: And I would also, for what it's worth, <laughs> just make a little plea to—I think a lot of. Well, I'd say a couple of things. One is when you're buying a wine for yourself, you know, at dinner party, go to the sort of wine store version of an indie bookstore. You know, some place where someone gives a damn. Each of those wines have been picked out carefully, and you know them. I think you—you you can tell the difference, right? They probably yeah. don't have a lot of neon. <laughs> They're probably not called Mister Liquor. I they mean, probably don't you know, also
0: sell beer, right? <laughs> no. Yeah, maybe. It's I don't know. The, the ones state. in my neighborhood just sell wine. Like the real wine ones are just wine.
1: But though you don't have to spend, they can look intimidating. You don't have to spend a lot of money. I mean, the good mm-hmm. stores, you know, they have great wines for any budget. And the ones I really trust, I feel like I could pick anything off the shelf and be happy with it. But the second thing I would say is, I think a lot of people, we've talked a lot about the wine, right, and sort of welfare of the drinker and, and how they're going to feel after that wine, whether it's hungover, or it's the additives, but. I would just make a little plea perhaps for the people that are also serving you that wine. I think a lot of us go to a restaurant and we feel like, oh my gosh, that wine there, I must have seen it, you know, it's three times as expensive as it is at my local wine shop. Like this is outrageous. You know, there it's a total ripoff. Well, you know, liquid keeps restaurants liquid. I mean, mm-hmm. wine, spirits, etc these are the things, you know, restaurants are not tech startups; They're very low margin businesses. And so what I would say is, you know, you go to a restaurant to not just have calories, but to have an experience. And Mm -hmm. so this is a little plea to don't feel like you're being taken advantage of. Like when you spend a little bit more on wine and, or if you spend any amount of wine, you know, on wine or, or on a beverage at a restaurant, you're helping that place thrive. You know, I would, so I would encourage people to, you know, Just keep that in mind. You know, I think that if you believe that restaurants are an important institution, an important part of our culture, um, buy that glass of wine for (laughs) dinner and feel good about it.
0: Spoken like a true psalm. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, let me ask you this. Wine and plants. Are there any wines, like... That go great with plant-based dishes, you know? Like do some wines. How do you pair a good wine with a plant-based dish? Oh Is I that a mean,
1: crazy question? No, it's not a crazy question, but the answer is yes, you could absolutely do it very well, very successfully. I mean, in some ways, it's um it's no different than I mean pairing wine with anything else. I mean, is there a particular vegetable you're trying to Pear?
0: I don't know. I didn't know if there, you had any like hacks for like if, you know, people eat a plant-based diet, like what types of wines they should. Because aren't there some wines? I don't know. I could be wrong. I don't know much about wine, but I try. I really try. But I took a <laughs> class once. I, all I learned were about legs. And I didn't know <laughs> much about it. Anyway, so, like, if like I know there are some wines, I think, that do better with meat or fish. You know, if, like, you're getting fish for dinner, everyone's always, like, get a, you know, a light red or a white wine, usually. Or I was at an Indian restaurant, and the guy was, like, get a Riesling. And I'm, like, oh, no, 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 they're too sweet. He's, like, not our Riesling. Like, get it. You'll love it. It pairs perfectly with our Indian food. And I was, like, all right, you're Indian. Like, this is Indian. Let's do it. And I loved it. So are there any, like, kind of go-tos for just, like like, I don't know like a plant-based pasta dinner or just like a rich, like sweet potato dinner or anything like that? Is this a weird question?
1: No, I think, but I think that you, first of all, I would say that wine pairing is less exact than a lot of people would have you believe. So, and I think it it really goes back to your own tastes, but I also think I'm not trying to be a cop at, I think that taste is subjective, but you, Mm -hmm. you have to first, in order to make a informed decision, you have to get a little up close and personal with your senses Um, goes back to sort of what I was saying, but I think think that, um, you know, this idea that, yeah, white with fish, red with meat. I mean, not if you enjoy a red wine with your fish or, Mm. and so I think when it comes to vegetables, I would say that the general rule of thumb with wine pairing, which reads a little bit like a riddle, which should be a clue that there's no right answers is um, that opposites attract and, likes complement, so opposites attract well you know a kind of rich fatty um food tends to go well with wine that has enough acid to really cut through it you know if you think about the classic pairings it's not a vegetable steak and you know bordeaux right steak has a lot of fat the bordeaux has a lot of acids and tannins likes compliment. So in the sense that if you're having um, a really acidic salad of some kind, you know, having wine that has enough acid to stand up to that salad dressing is a good idea. Mm. Um, I think, you know, the other really easy rule of thumb is what grows together goes together. So if you are eating, um, let's say a ribolita, right? Like the sort of Tuscan vegetable, um, bean soup, get mm-hmm. a Tuscan wine. I mean, oh, okay. if, you know, if you, these, if you think about like the farmers, the, the wine growers, the winemakers who, um, spend all day in the fields and then come home and sit down to their, um, you know, bowl of hearty Tuscan soup, Well, they're going to want that wine to taste good with it, and it usually does.
0: Wow. That makes so much sense. That's super helpful. I'm glad. Thanks. (laughs) Well, while we're on the topic of plants, I'm going to ask you my final plant questions as they relate to you personally. What is your favorite plant party restaurant? (laughs) Just a restaurant you like to eat plants at.
1: Oh, I love – it could be in New York. Yeah. I love – Yakitori Toto, which has amazing yakitori, like I mean everything from like grilled avocado, grilled mushrooms, um, and then also Dirt Candy, which mm. is a fabulous. Woman-run restaurant, yeah, it uh, has really creative, cool.
0: I've never been to the first one, but I've been to Dirt Candy. I'll have to put yakitori toto on my list.
1: Yeah. Well, yakitori, I think, is actually great for vegetarian. I mean, think about grilled tomatoes. You have all, I mean, it's just delicious.
0: I'm stoked. Okay. Japanese food in general is my go to. Yeah. A good, good planty meal. What's your favorite plant to eat? Oh my gosh, so many. (laughs) Mm. Don't say
1: wine. (laughs) Does blueberry
0: count as a plant?
1: Yeah. I love blueberries. I love also puntarelle, which is like a really, Bitter Italian um green. It is, it looks like some weird herb that's deathly toxic. And it's just I every time I see it on a menu, I instantly go for it. Wow,
0: cool. What's your favorite way to eat blueberries? Just raw. Just like by the yeah. yeah, by I the mean- bushel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is gonna be a tough question. What is your favorite wine? Can you even answer that?
1: Oh. I I can't, I mean, it's, it changes because I think it goes back to this idea of never drinking the same wine mm, twice. I mean, touche. I'm trying something new. It goes back also to this idea of flavor being not just taste and smell, but your expectations, the price, all these other things that go along with um, a meal or a dining or drinking experience. And so oftentimes what helps make a wine delicious is the fact that I'm curious and I've never tried it. Mm. Um, so my favorite wine is always changing and as likely or not to be whatever I'm drinking at this particular moment.
0: <laughs> All right, fine. But fine, I'll, fine. I Red or said, white, I, would you gravitate?
1: And it goes well with, I think, plants, really anything. Um, wines from Slovenia were, are, are delicious. I think hmm. they're kind of hard to find.
0: Yeah. But
1: if you find them, they're soulful, they're interesting, they're unexpected, and they're great.
0: Wow. Okay. That's cool. I've, I don't think I've ever had a Slovenian wine.
1: Yeah. And orange wines,
0: I should add, actually, orange, orange wine, wines, which are also
1: very hipster. What does that mean? Are good, I would say very good for plants because um, orange wines are white wines made like a red wine. So it's a white wine that spends a little bit more time on, um, sorry, it's a grape. You take a, a grape and it spends a little bit more time on the skins. It gets some additional tannins. It gets some additional kind of texture, body aromas. Um, And so an orange wine, it's not made with oranges. Mm -hmm. It's different from a rosé. It is so diplomatic. And so I think it would go really well with an all plant.
0: Actually, I had an orange wine. It's ringing a bell. I had one at ABC Cocina. Yes, probably. Yes, with their plants. Um, Have you ever sent back a wine when you were at a restaurant?
1: Yes. So in general, um, you know, when someone pours you, so if you, if you just order fire a wine off the list, meaning you don't consult with the sommelier, just point a finger at it. and He opens the bottle or she opens the bottle for you uh, and you don't like it. There's nothing wrong with it. You just don't like it. You're kind of stuck. It's sort of bad manners to send it back. But if you open that wine and there's something wrong with it, it's got cork taint. So it has that sort of, you know, wet cardboard smell, or let's say you put yourself in the sommelier's hands and they pick the wine from you and you absolutely hate it, you're more dead in the rights to send it back. And by the way, if you buy a wine from a wine store, which I've definitely done, and there's something wrong with it, it's turned, it's corked, what have you, at a good wine store, you can bring it back.
0: Wow. What do they do with the wines in the restaurant if a person, like if a Somme... Psalm- recommends a wine to you, he opens it, you taste it, you don't like it, you can send it back. You said that's PC, but what do they do with it then? So
1: it depends. If the wine, if you've opened up wine, you don't like it and there's nothing wrong with it, Uh um, they'll probably try and sell it by the glass. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe they'll, you know, they'll recoup it. They're not just going to pour it down the drain. You know, they may drink it themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they'll use it for staff training. You know, they'll have a, they'll bring the (laughs) staff together and, and do, you know, a training on, on the wines, how you taste them, et cetera. Um, in some cases, if the, if the wine is, you know, spoiled, something wrong with it, um, they will contact the distributor um,
0: and try and swap it out for a new bottle. Oh, Okay. How long can you, sorry, now I'm just like thinking of all my wine questions and like throwing <laughs> them at you. How long can you keep like an open bottle of wine in your own home? Like, doesn't red only have like a couple days and white you can keep in your fridge for a while? So, I think that there's
1: wines, especially if that's an older wine, they're already a bit delicate and oxygen um, is sort of oxygen to a wine is what sun is for a woman's skin. <laughs> it's it kind of, it turns the wine. Um, and it's, uh, so these older wines, a little bit more delicate. You know, too much oxygen. I mean, there's some wines, older wines, that even after an hour being open, they may have changed, not for the be better. I have had really cheap bad wines. I remember doing a tasting experiment with some friends. I left it open a week, got much better. Hmm. Um, but you know, wine is a little hardier than you may give it credit for. You know, it can probably. You'll know when it's no longer good, you really will, like there's no mistaking a line when it has turned, and so okay, okay maybe three days, maybe even five I mean it it there's no hard and fast rules. Oh, okay. I gather like many things when it comes
0: yeah, to the there are no hard and fast rules, <laughs> it sounds like, and those are helpful, okay, finally, what is a book that has inspired you in some awesome way? Only one, yeah, that comes to head your head or two if you want.
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, I will say that I just finished
0: reading a series of three books
1: by Catherine Dunn, who um, is perhaps best known for her novel, Geek Love. Uh, She also wrote a book called Attic, I believe. Um, I just finished it. I should know. Uh, And she also wrote a fabulous collection of essays about boxing called One Ring Circus. Wow. And I finally read Geek Love. I've heard about it for years. It is weird. It is wonderful. It is fun full of carnal things and smells. It's a very sensual book in many ways. Um, and she's just a really, she's in the last sort of, since discovering her work recently, she has definitely been an inspiration.
0: Cool. That's awesome. Well, you're an inspiration and your book is freaking hilarious and I can't wait to finish it. And I can't wait for everybody listening to go out and get it. So would you be so kind as to tell everyone where they can go stalk you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> absolutely well you can stalk me in the pages of cork dork which is available everywhere books are sold new york times bestseller <laughs> congrats oh thanks <laughs> definitely open some wine to celebrate that one yeah. um and i'm on instagram and twitter at b bosker and i'm me everywhere else. So there you
0: go. yeah, I would love to hear from you guys. And thank you so much again for having Thank me. you so much. This was amazing. I'm craving wine. I can't wait to drink and taste all the notes. And thank <laughs> you so much for sharing your time with us. And so, My <laughs> Thanks so much for having Bye. me. Talk to you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Party in My Plants podcast that was fun, right? I just love me some notes of horseshit. (laughs) What about you? If you know a wino in your life who might get drunk on delight listening to this chat, please share it with them. And if you want to get a different kind of buzz from Four Sigmatic's non-psychedelic mushrooms, don't forget to use the code PARTYINMYPLANS at checkout on their site to save 50%. And the show notes for this episode, plus lots more that makes being healthy as fun as a fricking party. Live over at partyinmyplants.com slash 140.